This is Dark Days Radio, episode number 92. Coming at you with a lot of good stuff today. I'm, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chig. How's it going, Chig? Pretty good, Mike. How you doing? Phenomenal. Really excited for this episode. A lot of great content, a lot of good stuff to go through. And uh, kind of leading the charge with a lot of this is, of course, our master storyteller and master storyteller manager, Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, hi. Yeah, uh, master storyteller manager. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been good. There's a lot of lot of good shit going on. <laughs> it's been a busy weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And we're gonna get to a lot of that in the uh, the news segment coming up. Yeah, uh, Chig, what kind of gaming have you been doing lately? Anything good? Have you had much time with your busy travel schedule? Uh, well, actually, uh, my travels are over, and I am home on a at least semi permanent basis now. Uh, unfortunately, I, I come home right around the uh, the holidays, so people mm-hmm. are getting ready to spend time with friends and other family and such. Uh, we have done a little bit of gaming, though not as much as I would prefer. Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, Chris, you've been exceptionally busy in the gaming department. What's been up? Uh, well, I would say my V5 home game has been on a bit of hiatus, because obviously people are busy because uh, they work night shifts, so that makes life a bit hard. But to fill up my time, I have been playing things like Adeptus Titanicus, uh, some Necromunda, and also running game. All right, nice. And I have done pretty much no gaming, so let's just ignore that and move on with the rest of the episode. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be talking about, of course, very excited, very brand new, Warhammer 40,000, the new RPG, Wrath and Glory. going to be doing a review of that. We'll also be talking about uh, kind of just the topic of war in the World of Darkness, so going over Wraith the Great War, and also World of Darkness Dogs of War, which was for Chronicles of Darkness 1st Edition. So that's going to be pretty sweet. But before we get to all of that, let's uh, move on over to a little news segment. All right, so it's been a while since we've done a, a news segment like this, but uh, yeah, there's been a lot going on. Of course, Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition is now in stores. I'm told it's been spotted. I haven't been in a game store in like five, six months, but uh, people think, Chig, you've seen it. So, Oh yeah, uh, there, there, there are uh, tons of copies on the shelves at my friendly local gaming stores, and uh, I've seen people picking them up, so good news. Yeah, yeah right I've on. not seen it not seen it in my local but um i'll have a check out and see if it's there i think the the dice the official dice are meant to ship maybe this month finally mm, nice nice good yeah uh what else is out well of course our friends over at onyx path have been putting out uh a lot of products not too much for Chronicles of darkness but uh we do have cavaliers of mars which is finally out on print on demand which is pretty exciting. Uh, very interesting system by a uh, friend of the show, Rose Bailey. So that's definitely uh, something to see if you're kind of into that John Carpenter, or uh, sorry, John Carter uh, of Mars sort of genre and and stuff like that. And it has very interesting swordplay mechanics, uh, as I recall. So it uh, could be useful for even like a swashbuckling 7th C sort of game. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Prince's Gambit, which is this kind of casual uh, Vampire the Masquerade card game, now has the uh, print-on-demand cards for the Sabat and Independent expansion. So that's something you can grab. And in addition to that, Onyx Path is going to be doing a Kickstarter for Chicago by Night 
fifth edition for Vampire the Masquerade, uh, which is very exciting. I'm really, really keen to see uh, Onyx Path's spin on that book and the entire Vampire Masquerade fifth edition concept. So that's uh, definitely something to look forward to. It'll be interesting because that's meant to be, it's not meant to be just a city book. It's meant to introduce elements which will push along the meta plot, uh, in particular what the La Sombra are doing. Because of course they are finally showcased in that book. Yeah, it should be pretty cool. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Cult Divinity Lost has shipped, and I've actually received it, so I'm really excited to dig into that. Very cool book, something I've been uh, excited for uh, for a long time. As a, uh, It's really just, a, you know, Cult is like a, a pillar of horror role-playing games. Um, so I'm really interested to see how they do Cult in the uh, 21st century, and also how they adapt the uh, Powered by the Apocalypse system for Cult. Uh, it should be really cool. Hmm. I've got a PDF of that, so it'll be interesting if you can wrap your head around the rules, because I often find Powered by the Apocalypse, I, I kind of like... It's, it's the same with City of, City of Mist. I find the way it's written, systems are written a bit... I find it a bit hard sometimes to get my head around what's going on, like the terminology, so... Really? Because I, I really enjoy the Powered by the Apocalypse system. We might have to have a little discussion off the air about that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And Chris, you've been uh, pretty busy over there, over in the United Kingdom. Uh, what have you been doing with uh, V5 and, uh, you know, Darker Days presentation in general? Uh, so, um, yeah, just yesterday, uh, I was at uh, Fanboy 3 in Manchester. So Fanboy 3 is like a really good, big gaming store in Manchester. And there's like about two or three gaming stores in Manchester. But this one is like properly done i was there when they first opened their original location so this is the first time i've been to their new location so we basically took over upstairs and we were running i had myself and three other trusted fellows uh, who have either been in my role playing group or are darker days listeners or in the case of one fellow i used to work at games workshop with me doing demo games and everything else so you know, basically brought a uh, soldiers of fortune a team of uh, of storytellers uh, to run uh, fifth edition, uh, so we used a scenario called Make Blood Boil, which will be put out for free, uh, much in the same way as Ascension Night. It follows on from the events of Ascension Night, so you can you could run it using the characters really from either uh, demo, either scenario, because there are pre-made characters for both scenarios, so you could use either set really. Uh, we had about 18, no, we had 18 players. We had 20 signups. The two didn't turn up, and we had more people trying to sign up after we were officially full. So um, that was really great. And everyone left very happy with learning how to play the game. A lot of people were new to role play games, a lot of people were new to Vampire, and a good few people were aware of Vampire through like the, um, the computer games, but never done tabletop RPG. So it was a really good selection of players. Uh, and yeah, we got to give away, because we weren't just there for you know doing it for us and for Fanboy 3. Uh, it formed part of the um, Visit Manchester uh, promotion for their um, Halloween in the City Festival. So there was also other events going on in the city uh, for Halloween. And of course, we were sponsored by White Wolf. So not only did we get to give copies of the books to the uh, storytellers because you know they put in their time they put in a good four hours running the scenario 
Um, we also gave away two copies to uh, the participants. So um, that was freaking awesome. Uh, and hopefully we will do more things like this in the future. Uh, Fanboy3 were very happy with the event and would, hopefully we will get tapped to do more things. Whether it's Vampire, I don't know. Maybe it'll be Wrath and Glory, maybe. Or, um, or we'll talk to White Wolf and see what other other um, events they would like us to run. Or uh, or other, other games that we're interested in. We shall see. Nice, yes. Definitely sounds excellent. And it's pretty interesting that you bring up uh, that so many people were new to role-playing that were checking out this event, because at the end of next month, uh, White Wolf is going to be at PAX Unplugged. They're going to have a bunch of tables set up and will, I believe, be demoing some more Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition. And I do recall from PAX Unplugged last year that there was tons of new people to role-playing, uh, especially lined up for Dungeons & Dragons. So it'll be interesting to see how many new folks are there to uh, check out V5 as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've also had going on at the same time as these demos, um, of course, in Germany and Essen is... Essence Spiel, which is like one of the largest gaming conventions going on. And I believe uh, White Wolf is there, not only, of course, demoing Vampire 5th Edition, uh, there are demos going on there of uh, Vampire the Eternal Struggle, uh, because obviously that's back in print, and demos of the Vampire the Masquerade Heritage board game. So they've got now a, a proper, like, you know, a, a good first alpha version, maybe beta version that they were demoing. So, nice. uh, yeah, stuff's been going on over there. And then you said about PAX, and of course, Pete is in Australia, and there's just been PAX Australia. Yeah, PAX Sauce is still going on right now, actually. Um, but I think Pete takes off Sunday. But uh, yeah, he was there for two days, uh, walking around in his Darker Days radio shirt. So if you saw someone with that shirt over there, that was him. And yeah, he's been uh, schmoozing a little bit, uh, checking things out, and uh, giving us a couple of great photos and one-liners to uh, to put into the social media. So hopefully we'll have Pete back on the show soon uh, to kind of give us some more insight into that. And in addition to that, re- regarding PAX, uh, I will actually be at PAX Unplugged. Um, I should be running one or two games. Not sure exactly when I'll be running yet, and I need to figure that out pretty soon, but it seems like actually Cthulhu Tech might be in the lead. I'm really just kind of... <laughs> I know the system is rough, the setting is rough, but uh, it's just got this like raw energy to the to the entire game that really just gets the juices flowing sometimes. So I'm thinking I might run that. Uh, probably inspired a bit by uh, the game uh, Chris ran uh, years ago for us, uh, <sighs> which I don't think was ever we never posted that uh, or anything. That was just kind of like a little private adventure. But you it never was posted that. No, no. <laughs> but it was. Uh, <laughs> it was. Definitely inspired a lot by uh, Ghost in the Shell, uh, especially Standalone Complex, which is, I think, what Section I'll be going nine. with. Yeah. yeah. GS9. Awesome. <laughs> Pretty sure it was inspired by Pokemon, you guys. Yeah, Chig had a character that I designed <laughs> who was Pokemon Master, but it really fit very well with the entire, like, you know, Cthulhu mythos and the uh, the mythos of the Cthulhu Tech game, just for somehow, for whatever reason, <laughs> so... That fucking that fucking game system. I don't know where they are up to with the second edition. I don't know what's going on with it, but it's been in beta playtest for the past four years, pretty much. So <laughs> let's see what happens. Oh no. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of sweet science fiction games, I think it's time for Chris to give us a review of Wrath and Glory. 
topics of highbrow storytelling. So, Warhammer 40,000 Wrath and Glory. So this is a new version of the 40k RPG. Uh, the original one was done with uh, Fantasy Flight Games. Yep. 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 And was the percentile system, much like the second edition, well, previous, I would say first, second, and now currently fourth edition of the Warhammer roleplay game. Yeah, I think it was important to mention the kind of strange uh, genesis of the previous Dark Heresy, uh, yeah. Only War, and all of that, because it originally started as... Um, it was Black Industries that made it. Oh, I think with yeah. Green Ronin pitching in. It was based off of, yeah, warmer fantasy roleplays system. And then Fantasy Flight took it over. But yeah. the system was extremely, extremely convoluted. And all the different Clunky forms and manifestations. Baroque. Let's be nice and call it Baroque. It was yes. okay. And <laughs> it, it obviously echoed a lot as well from uh, the, the Inquisitor miniatures game, which was kind of a miniatures game that was also trying to be a role-play game at the same time um that was an interesting thing and that was percentile system as well so you can see where that led into the role-play aspect so the previous editions you had what so we had like dark heresy which was you were basically playing inquisitors and their 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 um their cadre uh they had stuff so you could play death watch uh, so you could play Marines only war, so it was more kind of Imperial Guardsmen focused. And then there was you could basically play as like Chaos Cultists. Yeah, Black Crusade. Yeah. Black Crusade. So it tried to cover a lot of things. Oh, and of course Rogue Trader. So you could play as a Rogue Trader traveling from world to world with his Imperial uh, Charter to do what the hell he likes for the uh, for the Imperium. Which I think is a good place to start then. So um, people who are not aware of what for Warhammer 40,000 is, it is the year, War it is the year, it's the 41st millennium. Uh, the Imperium of Man is this huge empire across many worlds of the galaxy. It was at one point ruled over by this demigod, let's just say, or god in human form called the Emperor. Uh, he basically reformed Earth because it was this techno-barbarian wasteland after the Dark Age of technology and the uh, the various schisms and everything else that went down. Uh, he obviously reformed Earth with his superhumans and then he used the next generation of superhumans, space marines, to go out into the galaxy to bring it back under his control, which is called the Great Crusade. And on, on those adventures, he would then find the Primarchs, which were basically his sons, who were also the genetic source for the legions, the space marine legions. Of course, that Great Crusade involves things like teaming up with uh, the Adeptus Mechanicus on Mars, who have these amazing war machines and technology that they have looked after, but they treat technology as if in a very religious, cult, superstitious manner. And of course, the iconic machines of the Adeptus Mechanicus are the Warlord Titans and the Reaver Titans, the the, the, you know, the the Titan Legions, these massive, towering war machines. So he has those, he has his Space Marines. And he basically goes out and reclaims all the worlds of man because there's been uh, these warp storms. Because space travel is not just through real space, it's through this psychic other realm, the um, which is filled with, unfortunately, filled with demons and the chaos gods. Cut things short, the, uh, the, 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 well, the crusade is a rousing success until one of his sons, Horus, turns on him along with many other of the legions, and there is a civil war, which 
essentially leads to half of the Space Marine Legions turning to chaos and venerating the Dark Gods, the other half remaining. Uh, the Emperor is mortally wounded, Horus is dead, um, various other Primarchs are dead and missing, and the chaos, uh, the, the forces of chaos flee to the Eye of Terror, which is this rip in reality where the chaos gods are and there's various worlds. The Emperor is interred on a grand th- on this massive throne, which sits on a gateway into the webway, which the Elder have. That's another discussion for another day. And he acts as a psychic beacon to, that allows for space travel to be performed uh, easily. Even though, so he's basically in a, in, a, in a form of stasis, but his body is crumbling away, and his his massive psychic potential, his soul, is trapped in this corpse. So he is a corpse god. What else do we say? Um, oh, he's obviously, to, to maintain this psychic beacon, he is sacrificed, uh, sacrificed to him daily ten, tens of thousands of human psychers, so people with psychic. So the setting is very Baroque, it is very dark, it is very grim. There are very various races that humans have to contend against. There are demons, there are the space orcs, or the Uruk, as they're uh, called. Uh, there are another ancient race. There are the Eldari, who are basically space elves that have various um, bone, psychic bone kind of technologies. They go through space using the webway, and they have um, they have uh, their craft world Eldar, who survived uh, the the emergence of the god Slanesh. You also have the Dark Eldar, who tried to stave off the hungry god by sacrificing souls to it. Um, you then have the Tau, who are a younger race, that are monumentally technologically advanced. You have the Necron, who are basically the undead in space. They are robots, uh, shells that contains contain the brains, the souls of of uh, their race, um, and they they've been around for eons, and they're waking up because it's the right time to do stuff. So there's plenty of races, and then if we get to where we are with the current setting. Uh, shit has hit the fan. The 13th Black Crusade by the Force of Chaos emerge from the Eye of Terror. They invade the world Cadia, which has these massive pylons on it that are of Necron design that try and keep warp space closed. And things go bad. Cadia is blown up. And this precipitates a massive amount of warp storms, uh, which ravage the galaxy and split it in half, called the Sick. Uh, the Cicrotix Maledictum. So this essentially splits splits the Imperium into two halves. One half where the worlds can still, you can still travel between the worlds to Earth, and then the other half, which you really can't reach because there's these massive warp storms in the way, and that is known as the Imperium uh, Nihilus, the Dark Imperium. And this leads up to things like the the Primarch of the Ultramarines reawakening and being brought back, and he leads a brand new crusade, um, there's a bit of team up with the Eldar, especially um, uh, Eldred Ulthran, who is a, uh, a psychic farseer of the um, of the Craftwood Ulfway, and they've been having this whole plan where they take the souls of Eldar who have died because they're a dying race. They put them in these cool gems, and now there are enough souls that they're reaching critical mass that they're going to awaken a, dar- uh, a death god of the Eldar, their last hero because all their gods got killed by the Chaos Gods. And this new god called Yanid will obviously be their salvation. So they basically will get to win in death. Of course, the Orcs are just having fun because it's war all the time. Chaos is just chaos, being a bit weird. Uh, there's loads of weird, strange, 
you know, conspiracies, cults within the Imperium. You can't trust certain people. Certain Space Marine Legions may well actually, even though be Imperial, may well actually be a Chaos uh, Legion in disguise that have been masquerading for this long, and vice versa. There may be some that have, that have existed within the Chaos Legions who are actually loyalists. Yeah, so that's kind of an overview of the setting. It is yeah, Baroque. You yeah. have mile-long ships. You have ships capable of bl- obliterating planets. You have s- hive cities that are miles tall that house billions and billions of people. Uh, you have psychers, obviously, emerging as the human race is on the precipice of becoming this massively powerful, psychically powerful race. And the problem is, if you can't get those psychers under control demons start emerging in places as these psychics are gateways for these dark powers. And so the the um, the dark Imperium, because you don't get the, Inqu- the Inquisition basically sends these black ships to harvest up all the psychers, that isn't happening. So half the galaxy, there are psychers, lots of psychers, and they're not being controlled. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Warhammer 40,000 <laughs> is definitely like a really interesting setting. It's pretty obvious when you really go through and dig into it, you can see how it's just a, it's a synthesis of all these different, um, really like popular fantasy and science fiction properties. Like the Imperium really is inspired uh, by the Dune science yes. fiction series. Um, but then when you start, you know, taking this melange where you put in these these knightly monastic orders of space marines, and you add in these chaos gods, which are kind of like the, uh, well, they're previously from Warhammer Fantasy. But, uh, you know, definitely inspired by Michael Moorcock's work. Uh, There's just like this really cool, wide breadth for you to explore. And because the setting has been, you know, written, there's so much written for it over the past almost 30 years that uh, actually was a rogue trader back in uh, 1987 or 89. Might actually be 31 Uh, years now. It'll be, I think it'll be 89. Okay. Approximately three decades. Uh, There's a lot of like, there's cool stuff. As you mentioned, the conspiracy theories, those have been kicking around since, you know, the early 90s. And when you have a role-playing game like this, it enables you to explore the setting in a lot more detailed manner than the miniatures war game does, which is why Wrath and Glory is just such an exciting book to have coming out. So I think that leads us to what does Wrath and Glory do for us for this game? The thing is, within the setting, you can play quite happily a human, standard box standard human one of the many billion upon billion of the imperial guardsmen or the occupants of these hive cities so you could be a member of one of the gangs that roam the underhive of necromunda or whatever hive world you wish or maybe on one of the more peaceful worlds maybe um because if you if your only insight into the into the setting is the war game you you think oh god it's war everywhere no there are plenty of worlds that are perfectly safe uh and and just pay their tithe to the imperium no Uh, no wait a minute i thought that in the grim dark future there was only war no 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 you need to read some in quick you need to read (laughs) some of the eisenhorn trilogy um, or you could play a member of the Craftworld Elder or one of the Orcs. For the Orcs, it's always war. It's, and then of course you've got the Space Marines who are like these, um, you know, they're, they're they're taken from savage environments, whether it's a hive world, a forge world, or some death world which has crazy alien life forms that humans barely exist on, and 
they're you know they're genetically ma- manipulated from from their teenage years to become these near immortal um or killing machine humans that are their psychology psychology uh, psychology is developed to to make them the perfect fighters and they have brilliant weapons and armor and then into the new setting you've now got these new marines called these primaris space marines who are basically were being developed for the last ten thousand years um because that's how long has gone between the horus heresy and now it's been a good ten thousand years so there's a lot of power disparity which i don't think the percentile system really enabled you to accommodate well because you have basic humans then you have orcs and some more powerful humans who may have bionics or psychic powers and i like the eldar and then then you've got space marine power armor and some of the best weaponry in the in the galaxy are very powerful even without their armor on or terminators which are even more insane you know tech armor designed to kill anything and then you've got the primaris space marines so there's a huge amount that you have to cover with the rules and be able to accommodate because all these things do make up the setting. You can really just focus in on one element of the setting and go, we're going to just focus on the world of Necromunda, for example, or the orcs existing on the planet Vigilus. Or, oh, sorry, not Vigilus, Angelus. Or you could do a bit more of a smorgasbord and think about, well, I'll, we'll play a game where we're a rogue trader, I'm a rogue trader, this is my crew who I've picked up, and I also have on board my my fleet, I have a I have a, a chapter of one thousand space marines that I use to to um take over worlds and bring them back into the Imperium, because that does happen. There are orders of space marines that don't have a homeworld that just gallivant around with a rogue trader. So there's a lot you need to cover. So in order to do that, I think the percentile system wasn't adequate enough to do that and do it neatly, I think is the issue. Is that a good feeling? Yeah, uh, definitely. So the genesis of the previous first edition like uh, role-playing system for for Warhammer 40,000 were based off of Warhammer Fantasy, which the percentile system worked pretty well for it because the the power discrepancy and the granularity of the percentile system forced the uh the starting level characters to be you know hugely incompetent (laughs) uh which was fine for the setting because it was kind of this call of cthulhu sort of investigations in this this renaissance fantasy world where your characters are probably going to die or go insane so having weak characters worked well but with warhammer 40,000, it the system was kind of showing uh showing some issues because you had to cover fairly competent basic characters in dark heresy but then also superhuman characters um which could take on you know three or four in the uh whatever whatever the name of the space uh and then also for the rogue trader setting you started off as these super powerful spaceship captains that were commanding crews of you know a million people so you know the the percentile system one to a hundred didn't work out very well which is why I think they had to go with sort of the dice pool system that we have here, right? Yeah, so Ulysses Spiel is a German game company. I do a lot of translation work, but now they've got another branch called Ulysses North America, which are behind Wrath and Glory. So Wrath and Glory's dice system is a dice pool system that uses D6s, 
And the idea is that if you to to get a success, which is called an icon on a die, you need to get a four or five. A roll of a six on a die is called a exalted icon and counts as two icons, but also has further effects. So in that respect, the basic dice pool system is to me very simple and is basically V five. Yeah. You, know, you could just mm-hmm. take half on stuff and go, yeah, I'm competent enough to beat the difficulty rating of needing to get this many icons. It's really simple. Now, where the exalted icons coming is or is to gain extra flavor and extra effects. So you can um, you can spend exalted icons. So long as you get enough successes to succeed with the rest of your dice, you can use the excess exalted icons to gain extra damage dice, on your attacks to do to make things like critical hits things like that so they are an opportunity to add flavor you can even use them i think you can use them to store up to gain you can bank use them to bank uh wrath points for the game so you can you get points that you can use that you can spend as a pool to gain um to gain re-rolls and stuff like that but you can bank then your exalted icons to get to replenish this pool so, and then in this, you also have a kind of almost like a wild die, like from the old D6 Star Wars called the Wrath die, which again means it allows you to get, you know, ma- you know critical hits and, and massive fails and stuff like that. So it's a very simple, fast system. And the great thing then with a dice pool system like that is you can use a dice pool system to represent a single person and use a dice pool system to represent a mob of people. You could use a dice pool system then also to quite rapidly uh, represent spaceship combat, vehicle combat, and it's very easy to see how a dice pool system obviously quite neatly scales for a basic human to a uh, a space marine because a space marine is obviously going to have a huge dice pool for things like you know combat and shooting. So you get the so so. The question then really becomes less about whether you're going to hit or not for an Imperial Guardsman and a Space Marine. It's all about the quality, you know, the the, the degree of success. So that's the, that's the basics um, of the system uh, there. There are other things within the system that it uses. So if I give you um, some basic ideas of that, there is um, a system of cards uh, that they're bringing out called Wrath cards, which are, first of all, allow you to, to draw to do to represent critical hits in combat, you know, serious injuries, grievous injuries like that. Those cards are also used to do a, um, a, a method for controlling treacherous tasks. So things where you're up against a clock and you need to say, I don't know, defuse a bomb or uh, a ch- you've got to get through like this chamber's flooding. You need to get out of it before the place explodes. All those kind of like, you know, things that you are very cinematic. Now, Often they're quite hard to, to um, it can feel very arbitrary as a storyteller, as a GM, to to go, you're running out of time. So these cards allow you to better randomize how that, how that works. And so the cards have keywords, characters have, the player characters, depending on how they've built their characters, have keywords associated with them. And that means you can't act unless the card you've drawn has a keyword that your character has. So... Hmm. It adds in that idea of randomness of things aren't quite as simple as you're trying to defuse the bomb. So, and then as you draw these cards on each round, obviously the clock is ticking down as you draw these cards, and you might have only 
it may mean you've only got three rounds to to to, to do all the actions and to succeed at the task, or maybe you've got five rounds or whatever. When you get to the final round, you can complete all remaining tasks, but obviously you're doing them under pressure, up against the clock, so everything becomes a lot harder to do. So because of those keywords, it almost kind of is kind of like saying your party is mostly good if they have a good if they're very diverse party that covers all these keywords. And Chick, you were saying that's very similar to something in the talk. Is it in Torg? Yeah, uh, Torg uh, Eternity, the uh, the newest version of the game, which is also from Ulysses. Yes, indeed. Um, the other thing that's very cool about the very nice about the system is that um, it has built into it the idea of tiers. So tiers being um, how many points do you have to build your character? And if you want to get a really dirty, gritty game of Imperial Guards, when you play tier one, you only have a few points to spend, which is enough to you know to buy the archetype for your Imperial Guardsmen and their gear and their, their skills. Play tier one, with those build points, it is impossible to build a space marine. So in that way, having those build points means, yes, you can play a space marine at tier three, but also if you play a human character at tier three, who is, say, a inquisitor, all those excess build points that a space marine has to spend on their equipment and, and basic profile, that is what makes them a space marine. This Imperial Guard, no, so this uh, inquisitor, I've got the, all these build points. They're just like, right, how do I make my character be a really powerful inquisitor who is capable of walking up to a space room? And while he may not be a match for him in combat, is clearly this expert investigator and who could even intimidate a space marine. So that is how this system accommodates power disparity. I was going to ask about the, uh, the scaling issues, if it had the... Uh... The palladium problem of well, one guy in the group wants to play a rogue archaeologist, and the other guy wants to play a dragon. Yeah. So I'm glad glad to hear that it uh, doesn't have those problems. Yeah, and then the other thing is mm. with the the tier system is it also kind of calibrates the um, calibrates kind of like the style of game because depending on what tier you're at, it limits the number of bonus dice you get to your dice pool for things like equipment or, or modifiers uh, that, that obviously represent adverse effects. So so that way, if you're playing tier four and you're a basic human, you could have, because of your equipment and because of all your skills, you might have a whole load of things that mean you get a bonus like three or four dice to your dice pool because obviously you're a skilled combat master after you've been roaming so many worlds and you've met so many people and learned so much stuff. So again, that means a character can can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with other characters that come from that tier level at their basic build. So it also caters for that. But that also means that then at tier one, you can't get tons of bonus dice. And that means it does feel really gritty, like you are relying on your base characteristics. Other things then to talk about rules within it, uh, just to finish off, let me just have a flick through, because this book has a lot of things in here. As I said, you can you can build orc characters, uh, you can build Chaos Cultists, uh, Heretics, which are Chaos Adeptus Mechanicus, uh, you can play Chaos Space Marines if you are so inclined, 
obviously Eldar, uh, Eldar Corsairs, Corsairs being like Eldar pirates um, <laughs> and psychics. There are tons of cool skills, obviously. Um, and then uh, the thing I've mostly not said much about is, if I get through to it, because I've yet to run the game and I'm planning to run it very soon, is the combat system. So I'll give you a um, the idea of how it works. Is that generally it's considered that you don't use an initiative system in this game, like most other games, uh, in the same way. It's considered that you know, the players are the heroes generally of the of the system of the of the setting that you're playing. So they will always get to act first, unless they're ambushed or surprised or something. And then the turn system is one of the group activates then one of the antagonists activates and you go back and forth now you can then use wrath points i think it's the wrath points or or whatever type of point system it is within this but to interrupt the initiative system so that then you can go oh actually he's just acted and i really want to interrupt and get my action in there and of course as antagonists you're not going to have they're generally not going to have um the equivalent of wrath points to spend unless they're kind of like some major villain in which case they have they come with things called ruin points which allow you to again interrupt the initiative system and and gain bonuses on things but otherwise you know it's very simple it's like with the dice system it's roll to hit if you hit then it then you check the damage see if you've got any exalted icons that are left over to turn into extra damage die uh, you roll the damage and if you do enough, if you do enough versus the armor and so forth, then you'll deal wounds. If you don't deal wounds, you do deal something else called shock. So shock represents the fact that as you get as you're in combat and you're getting hit, you may not be getting hurt, but obviously your resolve to to stay in a fight is diminishing. So that I think is quite good because then that represents the fact that you know um, a space marine against an entire mob of humans. He may not have to hurt many of them to drive them away because they will just look at him in terror <laughs> as he is, you know, quite happily punching and punching people in the head and shattering skulls. Uh, so I really do think the system is very fast. I think now the question you may ask is, does it feel very 40k? Um it may not feel the same 40k if you play the percentile system, but I think 40k is more more than just about the dice system. I think the dice system does matter, uh, and I think the dice system in this case matters in that it can allow you to represent any, any type of kind of combats and interactions. Like there's also, I say combat, there are entire there's an entire section on this about um, obviously I said space combat, but there's also entire sections that explain about how to do investigations um and when i say how to do investigations it also has about social interactions because it's about the idea of um with with the investigations is that you are seeing whether the group gather the right clues gather the right conclusions and then at the end of it you do or you have a, a you can mechanically see whether a person the person who will judge their success will they who is maybe the judge, if it's that kind of courtly drama, or someone else like the governor of a planet will accept their conclusions that they have found the right information and have made the right case 
for their conclusions. So that is built into it as well. So that's kind of useful mm. because it's basically saying this game is telling you in that, that section, you can run procedural investigations, which really leads me to the point that if you pick up Wrath and Glory and you also pick up the, the pre-written um, campaign book called Dark Tides, I've just been reading through and I've read the first, uh, the first scenario in it. The first scenario really only has about one or two, uh, sorry, maybe two, maybe three, possibly a fourth option, depending upon how you play it, but very few combat scenes. Everything is investigation, social interaction, and trying to work out who murdered this imperial governor on a planet. And I really like that because it's trying to say that 40k it's a bit like on Hollow Metropolis in that sense. On Hollow Metropolis is often not about the zombies. The zombies are kind of the, the background, the, the props, the the flavor of the setting. In the same way, 40k, you know, you could play the Imperial Guardsmen on the front line of some fucking world where they are they count for nothing. But also you can play a very high level um investigation where you are an inquisitor with his cadre and you are having to deal with the the conspiracies and, and the rivalries within the bureaucracy of these imperial worlds and finding out what is really going on is it you know a conspiracy with the imperium is there the taint of some evil xenos is it the taint of chaos or is it the taint of a rival faction of inquisitors who follow a different creed there you know the game caters for that quite well and caters as i said for playing you can play orcs so you could be you know orcs or whatever world enjoying the weird fun they do you could be elder and have some very strange travels through the webway maybe you go to the crazy dark elder world of uh, i say world but realm of kamara which is this hellish dark city within the webway um it lets you do a, a freaking lot and also if you really wanted to in this day and age um with everything that's in in this book and there's plenty of example beastery of things like demons and uh aliens like gene stealers and gene stealer uh hybrids and stuff you can tell quite a lot of stories from the core game and from it you could mostly guess how to build things you need to represent other things within the setting. I know there should be an Eldar book that mostly be an Orc book. I'm sure they have an antagonist book for the Tyranids because fighting Tyranids is kind of epic and amazing. Playing Dark Eldar would be a really fucked up game, let alone playing Chaos. Uh, playing Chaos. Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course, playing road traders, and that's what the main uh, Dark Tides book has. It has four scenarios where you've got a road trader and his his crew. Have he, you don't play as the road trader? He he or his minions that he's tasked to do stuff in this this section of the Dark Imperium. But the last scenario in it, you play Eldar, so there's, you actually look at the events from a different angle. Yeah, it's a really, really good book. The only thing I think is that's kind of upsetting is there's not enough weapons in it because I want to run a game of Necromunda. And I say Necromunda, I mean we roleplay in the the harsh environment of Necromunda and there are so many weapons because I've been playing the, the, the miniatures game. But when I look at it, I go, I think we can fudge it. It'll be fine. 
So I think it's a great game. Yeah. No, it definitely sounds like it. And, uh, you know, as I kept mentioning, Warhammer 40,000 has this wide breadth, this entire galaxy to explore. And incredibly, this core rulebook covers 90%, 95% of it. It's pretty much anything you'd need for a basic game. So, yeah, really exciting and uh, definitely something I want to check out some more of. Yeah, I think the thing is with the Dark Tides book is, as a campaign book, it really shows that you don't have to, you can really focus in on just one small section of the Imperium. I think that's where things can be rather, when you look at the setting, it can be rather daunting. Like, what do you do? Do you, what are you doing in this setting? But really, you can focus in minutely on just one world, one hive of a world, one city of Mm -hmm. a world, and just stay there with these char- with your characters and just and just do stuff there before you even think about well how do they travel to another world that's complicated unless they're high enough status characters to you know requisition a spaceship let alone a shuttle to um to take them to some strange other world and if you and the the, the thing i can only suggest is if you're stuck for ideas you know look at some of the things look at the wikis because they're extensive that people write wikis for this setting but look at the books like um the eisenhorn trilogy because there are some really weird worlds he goes to and some very as i say very peaceful tranquil worlds um you could easily with this rule set i would say and the fact that i said i was playing adeptus titanicus you know you could easily say you're the crew of a warlord titan <laughs> you know and that would be a very different experience as everyone is barking orders and and uh, and and you know target solutions and 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 role play that experience of you know one player is the princess who's controlling the titan, but the other people are also wired in controlling the massive city devastating weaponry. And you can look at say the comic books that came out uh, ages ago that look at you know a warlord titan and, and such like. Yeah, um, I think I'd also say that uh, you know while while Chris and I don't particularly like the uh, old percentile system, um, even though it will clearly still have its uh, its proponents overall, there's some really great source books, especially for the Rogue Trader yeah. uh, line that came out that you should really check out because they give you tons of ideas which go far beyond the uh, the tabletop war game and explore a lot of other different uh, creatures that you might find in the universe, like the uh, Jacaro and s- stuff like that. So those are uh, definitely another great resource, I think. Uh, also, the the uh, Black Crusade game has some really cool stuff. I would say also, because of the nature of the setting with the Chaos Gods and Demons and so forth, you know, if you want to look at, say, a procedural investigation if you really want to go down that route yeah you may as well just start looking at like call of cthulhu kind of scenarios and then just re-skin them for you know the 40k universe because you know you say shock off i say great unclean one you know (laughs) it's uh it's that type of thing so i think after all of this we should go to the uh the final word with chig chig what is your verdict on wrath and glory thus far well, as someone who doesn't really know everything there is to know about the uh, Warhammer 40k universe, um, it does sound like it could be a pretty fun game, and uh, I would definitely give it a shot. Well, that's good you said that, because of course, the plan is that I will run for the podcast a one-shot 
where everyone is just a dirty little necromunda ganger <laughs> in the underhive and uh let's just say necromunda is a colorful colorful world absolutely can't wait chris can't wait looking forward to it so i think with that uh let's move on to uh a little bit of world of darkness and chronicles of darkness content chronicles of darkness so since we were talking about wrath and glory this episode we figured we'd pair that with a uh an exploration of war in the world of darkness because you know we usually think of chronicles of darkness and worlds of darkness as these sort of uh urban horror games you know focused a lot on the city the interaction of uh you know, high-density population centers, a lot of people, and how these monsters kind of interact with that. And, of course, we go into forays into the wilderness with Werewolf. And uh, with the Mage games, you can explore these, you know, metaphorical, metaphysical realms. But um, you can definitely use the World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness as a uh, vehicle to explore war, which is, you know, a very horrific aspect of human society. There was a book that came out for uh, Chronicles of Darkness called Dogs of War. It's World of Darkness, Dogs of War, because this was back in the uh, first edition days. And I think this would be a good place to start because it, it's a source book that gives you a lot of basic material to work with um, for games that have to do with the military, with irregular units, and, um, and just storytelling in general. So it was originally written by uh, uh, John Newman, uh, Chuck Wendig, who are both well-known, and of course, a friend of the show, Alex Green. And it's interesting because it came out a little bit before Hunter the Vigil, and you can kind of see how some of the uh, the basic ideas of Hunter the Vigil and how it, it sets up for careers and the like kind of uh, come to the forefront. Uh, however, uh, the book was also developed by a gentleman known as Stephen Lee Shepard. So I don't want to, like, totally badmouth this dude but uh, he's pretty notable in the exalted community as being a developer who develops these role-playing games but doesn't actually play rpgs and for exalted second edition that resulted in a lot of pretty rough books with strange mechanics and uh the other warning i kind of want to give is that uh this book was edited by scribendi.com this is a a phase in white wolf back in the day where they're using this online service for editing and uh, it just kind of hooked him up with some editor somewhere in the world to uh, do the copy editing and the like, which usually resulted in a lot of errors. So just two things to kind of watch out for right there. So the book's uh, divided up into four chapters about uh, conventional military, which is kind of a mess. Uh, Irregular units, which is extremely well-researched, but doesn't have a lot of World of Darkness focus. Um and Conflict Hotspots, which also is well-researched, but doesn't have a lot of World of Darkness focus. So the writers seem to uh, kind of go through this book, and you know they, they did a lot of research into, into terrorism, into guerrilla warfare and guerrilla units, but they, didn't, they were afraid to make the jump to linking that to the World of Darkness. And then there's also a storytelling section, which is really very good, but doesn't jive with the rest of the book. I'll kind of get into that in a second. So looking through this this book, it's it's very interesting to me, just kind of exploring and looking at how it was written, especially through the lens of Vampire the uh, Masquerade 5th Edition, because we know in that, we, we have the Gehenna War going on, which is interesting because it doesn't have anything to do with uh, any wars going on in the Middle East or conflict hotspots. 
except that they typically happen in the same place. And that's because, and logically so, it's a lot easier in this setting for supernatural creatures to to fight and uh, operate in areas which are in anarchy, where there's warfare going on, and it's less likely that their atrocities will be noticed. And I think that's a really interesting point, which unfortunately, this Chronicles of Darkness book does not go to. It does not make that conclusion. Yeah. Um, but as such, there are some pretty cool ideas in here, which I really want to highlight. So coming out of the, like the first chapter is uh, this interesting like occult special forces unit of the U.S. Army uh, called Zero Company. And they give you a lot of... Uh, a lot of good ideas for how to base this uh, this organization. Um, it's probably going to be regular soldiers, although it does uh, give you some ideas for how you can bring in different monsters, supernatural creatures into the unit itself. Uh, it gives you a lot of information on where they're based out of, and a lot of a lot of actually pretty mundane information with just how like the base operates, who the commanding officer is, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot for you to just kind of get going and make a very, very detailed uh, setting for your characters to, to operate in originally. Um, and then following that, there's tons of different missions that uh, the characters can go on, usually about a half page. And they can range from everything from UFO retrievals to like supernatural naval sabotage and just a lot of different, a lot of different ideas for how you can bring this sort of a, a military unit into the world of darkness itself. One that uh, really stood out to me was this idea linking uh, the book to Vampire the Requiem, and specifically the Seven Covenant, which is this uh, kind of mysterious group that typically, they seem to be vampires, and they hunt other kindred. And the idea that they give you is that perhaps Seven isn't actually the Roman numeral Seven, but is instead a uh, just an identification marking for a vampire infestation inoculation, and that it's actually like an arm of the uh, U.S. government that uh, is operating or somehow influencing the uh, the seven vampires, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, there's also a lot of ideas for private military companies, especially they give you an example one called Blackfire, which you'll know is, if you know much about uh, modern military, is probably related to the, or, or inspired by the Blackwater uh, organization exists today the book from there goes on to give you a bunch of ideas for regular units from like people labeled as terrorists to guerrilla units to even arms dealers uh the arms dealers section actually thought was like surprisingly interesting because that's not something i've read too much about and the uh different ideas for a very action-oriented world of darkness game where you're going into a war zone to to deliver war materials and stuff like that and there's also a bunch of pages about how vampires, mages, and werewolves might interact with the regular units. Um, might a uh, coterie of Carthians end up with the Irish Republican Army? Maybe. So there's a lot of different stuff. Uh, there's also the World in Conflict section, which is pretty outdated. It was written 10 years ago, and um, you're probably better off just going on Wikipedia to uh, get information on or reading like BBC News just to see what's going on in the world. Unfortunately, it highlights a lot of things like uh, what was going on in Pakistan at the time, what was going on in Iraq at the time. But of course, the data is just, it's just outdated. And then finally, there's a, a storyteller section, which I think this is where the book really should have focused a lot more. 
because there's some really great interesting ideas for uh for example post post-traumatic stress disorder which we know uh is a, a huge problem for soldiers um and the rest of the book doesn't even talk about this doesn't even mention it it's not until you get to the storyteller section that someone one of the writers really put their foot down and said hey let's let's actually talk about this let's explore war and the psychology um that that the soldiers go through and also give you ideas for how to how to role play through that how to how to kind of explore that aspect so it gives you rules um kind of related to the virtue vice system and the old uh chronicles of darkness first edition morality system but i also think it's pretty notable because it uh it has these these little inklings of how the integrity system would develop in chronicles of darkness second edition which we currently have now um it's obviously less system heavy right here no condition cards or anything like that but still pretty neat hmm. and then another surprising thing that was thrown in here was of course that there's a mass combat system um which looks okay it's basically just rolling off with dice pools and one commander does the initiative um certainly better than exalted second edition but yeah pretty neat and then there's a whole bunch of different uh ideas for how you can use supernatural creatures as part of like the uh the conventional military you know how could a promethean be used for uh military purposes which is very tempting because of their wasteland effects yeah um you know putting them in a position where they could damage someone else's uh integral territory is is obviously something that uh people might want to use another idea was uh a changeling arms dealer who uses the hedge to get behind say enemy lines or into strange locations uh and transport weapons so yeah definitely a plus on the storytelling section i can see as you say this book because it predates uh hunt and vigil so there's definitely a lot of room in there i think the reason why they i think one of the things that's interesting they try and like you said they don't try and tie actual um any of the hotspots or or um, military groups to any particular, uh, we'll call it Chronicles of Darkness, um, supernatural group, because of course, um, you know, Chronicles of Darkness tries to make, I think makes more of the point that many of the worst, um, many of the worst atrocities and things that happen in the settings of Chronicles of Darkness is really all down to humans. Humans are the worst things actually ever, vampires didn't cause mm -hmm. you know the war in iraq they may well and that's the thing i think all the groups it's more about i think what this book could have could have had more about was how groups therefore like exploit war and i think that's more interesting is how groups exploit war or get caught up in it because um i mean if you go from mage mage is quite easy to think mm -hmm. about because war is a cover for um a very easy cover as is a is a, a core aspect of one of the exarchs um uh one of the exiles is all about is about warfare and the symbology of war so war is a is an agent uh, is a is a mechanism for them to control reality uh, and of course then you've got the adamantine arrows who obviously practice um combat and and uh the concepts of of uh of military ideas so that kind of works but i would say the thing with um, with with war, especially when you consider that we've got things like you know ISIS blowing up ancient cities and and, and uh, artifacts and so forth, is 
what is the i would say is what is the supernatural ramifications of war like does some bombing raid on some area open up buried chambers of uh of a um of some lost uh atlantean temple does um the act of so much war in in one area um or like the poisoning like you know gassing of an area uh taint it and cause um cause the 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 hissle to react in a particular way that means the local mm -hmm. werewolves which were trying to stay out of things have to go in there and rebalance the shadow and the material uh for vampires um you don't really have the same aspects and uh, i guess we're going to talk about this a bit later about uh where v5 fits in with war and everything i would say for for vampire requiem um really uh, i guess for them it's about war would be it just caused too much havoc for them and this is just an opportunity to settle scores um maybe it reveals ancient threats uh, and, and lost information uh mummy the curse mostly fits in really well right now with um with current hotspots in the middle east because of lost temples of Iram. and i'm sure some of the devastation that could be done could be a mummy waking up uh other things to consider is members of their cult who are actually part of um the military structure of whichever you know military force and, or, or from whichever country let's i'm still going on the list i think the promethean thing is really interesting and i think promethean in that sense mostly fits well with hunter in that there's mostly uh, you know there are special forces groups that are aware of supernatural creatures and make use of their you know that kind of hellboy-esque you know a team of of monsters yeah i think it's interesting when you bring up promethean it really would make sense for someone uh, for a Promethean on the um, refinement of iron mm. to explore war, to explore that aspect and some of the really just darker sides of, of human nature. Um, so it really would make sense for maybe not an entire throng, but some created to go to war zones. Demon um, fits in really neatly, I'm going to say. Oh, because yeah. we don't oh, know how much the actions of warfare and terrorism works into how the god machine is is creating infrastructure and destroying covering up infrastructure so we don't know what things uh, which people within the military may be an angel which and obviously how demons are able to take covers uh, have they fabricated a cover which is a military captain in some unit um and you could and that really means you could take the idea of that you know that spy um that's that that, that that spying and and conspiracy and you can directly implant it into a setting which into a story which involves modern day conflicts like that um so i think demon fits in massively well with the god machine yeah you could really ramp up just the paranoia of a wartime situation in that in that way one thing i was thinking about as i read this book is that when you look at uh, a lot of like military horror movies like aliens or dog soldiers it's really about how you know these these soldiers these humans go in they think they're all powerful they're badass they've got state-of-the-art equipment 
and then they just get their butts kicked by this force of nature essentially that's not something that the book really gets into that much unfortunately but i think a chronicle is structured in that way uh for one shots or, or limited stories uh are definitely a cool thing to do geist fits into this really well and in fact playing a mortals game dealing with ghosts of the dead of a recent conflict is great um have you watched spectral it was on netflix no nope. so spectral is i believe it's spectral i'm just gonna look it up uh, no you're so right it is spectral right so spectral the idea of that is um you have a uh, a rogue um I, let's just say it's a war zone and against some rogue state and that rogue state has invested in developing a technology which uses a form of cloning what it clones though is the um the neuro the brain and the neurons and the the, the nerve cells of uh, of people but it clones them out of a material known as a uh, Bose-Einstein condensate, so it's a fourth state of matter. In doing so, essentially what they've done is created uh, through the means of scientific, through a weird scientific manner, ghosts. So these ghosts are able to attack you and, and kill you by just moving through you. So essentially they kind of fuck up your nerve system and you're dead. And in order to fight back against them, they first will need to develop. They first will develop a way to see them, and so there's a there's a military scientist who uh, has some advanced uh, imaging system which projects light, and then you see things. So I think it was meant to be for night sight and everything else, but it actually means you can visibly see these um, these ghosts, and from that they're then able to develop um, a uh, kind of almost like a, an energy plasma kind of electromagnetic plasma kind of weaponry to kill these ghosts and they also discover that um basically like you know uh iron filings and you know stuff like that in circles around things acts as a defense against these entities so they can't move through um so basically they can't move through uh ferromagnetic materials like iron Hmm, okay. And that's just, like, really, when you think about it, that's a really fucking cool system for a cool setting in in some some Netflix film. Um, I don't yeah. know, what did you no, think that's about good. that one? I thought uh, immediately, obviously, since I'm a, a giant mage dork, that uh, it would make a great uh, campaign for, uh, like, a technocracy-style game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where you're uh, you're a group of void engineers who are tasked with uh, going into active war zones and cleaning up the ghosts that are stirred up. Oh God, yeah, that's oh that's yeah, ghostly cleanup. So yeah, Ghostbusters for war zones is um, brilliant. And I think I was going to say the other thing that's great and linked to this is is kind of like a you can go down the God Machine Chronicles route and look at bio horror. Um, you know, you've got deviant coming up. So, how many of these deviants are the result of, of, um, of, of pollution from war, or due to, or due to experimentation? Uh, you can go into various time periods to look at that. So, if you really want to get into the, the very nasty, topic of the and, and crazy occult experiments, maybe of of particular people like Himmler. Um, 
within within the Second World War or maybe the First World War, if you want to go back and be a bit more period or or be or, or further back. I mean, maybe you're thinking about the the war zone of like you know the Battle of Waterloo. Um, so you shouldn't really, I, I guess, don't limit yourself to a particular time period as well with war. Think about it um, in a broader manner, and I think I'll li- link into the, our next topic. Yeah. So. What was I going to say about science and body horror? No, let's something else. Well, I think something really cool you could do is um, let's take a Cold War scenario oh, yeah, okay. where essentially, essentially, your characters are lab scientists or something like that, and you're just trying to figure out different ways to use supernatural creatures against, let's say, let's say the Ruskies. Mm. Um, and basically, you have this kind of like tit for tat, you know, arms racing between the two, <laughs> and just seeing like how far the players and their well their characters would take it and how much they would sacrifice their humanity for this this cold war situation yeah i, I was gonna say deep. the thing is like chronicles of darkness because it has so much scope for other creatures it fits like hunter quite well so you could take a, a conspiracy that is within the military infrastructure and it could be that, as you say, like that experimentation. Slasher fits into this really well, right? You're just a, so you do a mortals game, you're a military unit, and you have to go after uh, someone that's got AWOL, who is now, due to the post-traumatic stress, is a slasher. But you're out in the middle of Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, there we go. I think in summary, World's Darkest Dogs of War... Uh... If you want the rules, I'd recommend getting it on PDF. Otherwise, you can just check Wikipedia and you know modern sources for a little bit better information. There's um, more up-to-date book from second edition. Is it Hurt Locker? Yeah, but that's more focused on armory. Yeah. Um, and and just giving you like extra combat rules, weapon rules, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's pretty good. But uh, I hear next, Chig's going to take us back to the past, and also give us some insight into one of the greatest World of Darkness role-playing game books ever. Classic World of Darkness. We're going all the way back to uh, the early 20th century with Wraith the Great War, uh, written by just a whole slew of uh, talented authors, Bruce Baugh, uh, E. Jonathan Bennett, Mark, and I'm probably going to butcher this last name, Sinzik, uh, Rich Dansky himself, uh, Jeff Grabowski, Don Cahan, or perhaps Cahan, John Maurer, Tara Maurer, James A. Moore, and fan favorite Greg Stolze. Uh, all-star list of uh, dark and depressing authors coming together <laughs> for an incredibly dark and horribly depressing book. Yes. Uh, Wraith the Great War is uh, set between Armist- Armistice Day, uh, which is November 11th, 1918, the end of World War One and the beginning of the Great Depression, 1929. Uh, Wraith the Great War asks the question, what if dying in World War I was only the beginning of the most miserable period of your wretched existence? Jesus fucking Christ, oh, man. <laughs> God. Uh, Wraith the Great War presents a historical vision of the world of twilight, uh, the period before the world of darkness truly became the world of darkness with the... Uh, nuclear detonation of uh, Hiroshima uh, and the beginning of the fifth great maelstrom. Uh, It's set in a world in which the quick are beginning their long, slow recovery from the war to end all wars and the dead are still slogging it out amongst themselves. Yeah. Chig, do they actually call it the world of twilight or 
they do in fact call it the world of twilight interesting yeah huh yeah they say in in the uh, introduction to the book that the world of darkness does not become the world of darkness until the nu- until uh the first nuclear explosion yeah i mean that's always kind of been like a a something they mentioned or hinted at in a lot of the core books but that's the first time i've ever seen it called out like that so it is called out by name interesting mm. so the setting for the game uh charon the emperor of stygia and which is of course the land of uh the european and american western dead uh has disappeared though still in theory rules his empire uh, however, in his absence, the Grim Legion, which is composed of wraiths who uh, died in conflict or war, uh, are in open revolt, threatening to take the throne for themselves. And of course, the fourth great maelstrom rages across the world. Uh, now, the, the great maelstrom, as for those of you who aren't as familiar with wraith as others, uh, is an apocalyptic storm composed of specters, which are the dark reflections of the of wraiths. Uh, who will literally tear apart anyone they catch out in the open and devour their souls. Stygia, of course, is uh, not alone in its suffering, uh, and the book goes into uh, not great detail, but it does mention uh, that since this is the the first truly global war of uh, such staggering destruction and loss, uh, that it has upset uh, the kingdom, the dark kingdoms of Jade in the east, as well as the dark kingdom of Africa, uh, sorry, the Dark Kingdom of Ivory in Africa, and the Swar, or the Land of the Dead, in India. Uh, I believe this is the only book that has any information on uh, the the uh, Dark Kingdoms of uh, Ivory and the Swar. Uh, I think the Wraith Player's Guide has a little bit of information, but not that much. Yeah, this has like a quarter of a chapter for Ooh. each of them. Oh, that which, is significant. Interesting. It, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it doesn't go into, you know, super detail, but it does give information. We'll get to it later on about uh, creating wraiths from those uh, yeah. those other kingdoms. Well, this was, uh, this is either the second or third to last wraith book. So oh, I think yeah, they're trying is, to fit in as much as possible. This is right there at the end. They're, they're just cramming in information. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really great book. So chapter one, uh, and there are seven chapters. Chapter one uh, begins by detailing the land of the living and its recent history from uh, the start of the Great War in 1914 uh, through the signing of the armistice in 1918 uh, and on to the current time of 1918 uh, from a more wraithly perspective. Throughout the, the first chapter, there are sidebars on uh, this newfangled mechanized warfare because, of course, World War One. Uh, began on horseback and uh, concluded in tanks, trenches, and airplanes. There are also sidebars on the role of women in the war, because, of course, the war was not confined to uh, neat little battlefields like previous conflicts. Uh, The war spilled over into many people's homes. And uh, the effects of uh, the Battle of the Somme, which uh, prior to this, uh, there had been no battlefield nearly as bloody and nearly as just horrific as uh, as the psalm and of course that is the direct cause that unimaginable death and destruction and just agony uh that is a direct cause of the uh aforementioned fourth great maelstrom if i'm right before the psalm the largest kind of battle that led to the largest amount you know 
loss of life would be what the um, would be Gettysburg, would it be? I believe that is correct. And that's uh, that again is very much like trench warfare, isn't it? I don't yep. know as much about that, so this is something that's definitely you guys know more than I do. Yeah, I think there was um, um trench warfare what? really hit really you know hit its stride as it were in World War One. Yeah, right. Uh, before that, you would have only really i mean really only major conflicts during the day so that you could see who you're shooting at um right. you would have a, a a group camped out over here and a group camped out over there on opposite ends of the the battlefield and uh they would uh spend the night maybe taking a few pot shots at one another but uh the uh the state of arms at the time was such that it wouldn't be very accurate right uh with regard to like um death counts there is the um there's some revolt in in china that had just an incredible number of casualties but i think the point that the book is trying to make here is that there is such a great number of casualties in such a concentrated location mm. yeah it's really just one um well it's it's a very long line but uh it's going on for how many months with just um the so battle many... the battle of the Somme lasted 140 days yeah Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was inc- just just hor- horrifying, unimaginable. The there are also fun and exciting little sidebars about uh, the Spanish influenza, which uh, yeah. while it was there, you know, killed twenty million people. So you know, vaccinate your kids. The chapter also goes into great detail on the various legions of the wraiths. Uh, legions in wraith society are determined by how you died. Uh, so there's, you know, a legion full of fresh new recruits from the war. There's a legion uh, full of uh, people who died from the flu. There's a legion of people who died of old age. And any any way that you can die, there's there's a group for you in the afterlife. You might not like them. They definitely don't like you. But they're there. And the chapter ends on the current standing of the guilds. Uh, now, the guilds are another... A set of factions in the afterlife, um, which, uh, as a sidebar, this uh, this really kind of shows how the Chronicles of Darkness character creation goes, where you have two different factions, factional axes that your character is created on, as opposed to the uh, the old World of Darkness, where you know you're a vampire and here's your clan, or you're a werewolf and here's your tribe. Right, right. You're unborn into one of the legions, but you could pick a guild or, in, in later Wraith, one of the uh, renegade factions or one of the heretic factions if you want. Sure. Of course, at the, at the time of the setting, the guilds have, uh, have been outlawed for 300 plus years, but uh, Wraith society needs guilds to chuck, you know, basically to exist. You have to have... Uh, somebody there to to make everything and that's the artificers guild you have to have somebody there to uh keep you from falling into oblivion and that's the pardoners guild so there are still guilds around despite them being outlawed it's never in my uh reading it's it's not yet been made clear how they get around these prescriptions except for hey they got to be there or society would crumble Uh, i guess society just kind of looks the other way sometimes yeah, I think that's kind of how it works. But there are, of course, other guilds that uh, 
or are outlawed and you know there's criminal guilds underworld of the underworld kind of thing where you know they're not only are they for real outlawed but uh the uh people are people in charge are busy with uh other problems you know the uh the insurrection going on as it were so uh it's time for the uh the other outlaw guilds and uh to come up and flourish uh, although I'm not really sure, I, I never understood why the alchemists were were outlawed. They don't really have a whole lot going on for them that would seem to put them against wraithly society. But who's to say? Anyway, moving on from uh, such light lighthearted and upbeat topics, uh, the book goes on to provide rules for warfare in the world of Twilight in Chapter Two. Uh, everything you'd ever want to cover, probably things that you really wouldn't want to cover in a regular chronicle uh, as given rules in this chapter uh things like battalion level skirmishing ship to ship combat uh dog fights between poorly built uh, balsa wood and canvas airplanes um it's a really very impressive chapter on the many and varied ways in which your characters can and or uh, will be killed in war do not get stuck in a crossfire there, there, are, there are rules for that, and uh, they're not pretty. Also, uh, uh, don't get in front of a tank. It is immune nope. to anything you can do for to it. Uh, sure if you not. can get into a tank, do that. Uh, and there are, of course, rules for doing that later on. Yeah, that's a good tip. And this chapter also includes uh, rules for environmental hazards, like uh, fire and uh, great maelstroms, uh, which are horrible, and you should avoid them as well. And there are rules. Uh, there's information on citadels, necropoli, and haunts, which are places where race congregate and are bastions against the storms, uh, if not the war, uh, and therefore great targets if you are for one side or the other in said war. So, Chig, did you go over why this war is occurring? Uh, because Charon isn't there. Or he's there, but he, he just kind of walked away from yeah. his throne. Right, and the Smiling Lord has this just huge influx of uh, people to his legion because yeah. they're all dying from violence. The war dead. There's uh, so, so many of them. Yep. And hey, why, why shouldn't we be in charge? There's so, so many of us. Yep. So many. It's very interesting. And that kind of sets the whole war um, setting in the Shadowlands. Pretty neat. Also horrible. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a horrible existence. So you spent... I don't know, three, four years of your life fighting uh, for the homeland. Uh, you personally did not succeed in, in going home. And uh, when you wake up, hey, guess what? You're, you're conscripted into another endless war. So chapter three goes over character creation uh, and how it differs, differs from uh, standard Wraith character generation. Primarily, you know, there's a few skills that are different. There's not a lot of computers in existence in 1918, so there's no computer skill. The Arkanoi, which are the Wraithly powers, are changed uh, due to the nature of war, uh, wartime thinking, uh, which gives the uh, powers of the dead a more martial tone. I'm not going to go over all of them in detail. Uh, the biggest uh, difference is that the, the uh, art of inhabit doesn't exist because that deals entirely with... Uh, taking over electrical objects and there aren't hmm. a whole bunch of uh they're not as common in uh 
the turn of the 20th century as they are these days. So that is replaced with the Kinesis Arkanoi, which does the same thing, but for, you know, standard mechanical objects. So after you have your character, of course, this being a Wraith game, as is to be expected, you uh, have a chapter on uh, creating uh, your shadow. Shadows are the dark little voice in your head that pushes you toward failure and pushes you toward self-destruction and ultimately pushes you toward oblivion. And they're going to be played by the guy sitting on your left at the uh, gaming table. Uh, so your, your, your fellow players will be the people who are the voice in your head telling you to give up, telling you to go ahead and just just kill that last link that you had to your life and to hope that that thing that you you carry on existing for what's it really mean in the end nothing chapter five uh talks about other groups in the game uh this is where it discusses uh race from other dark kingdoms includes uh, several different splats and a uh, fresh new Arkanoi from the uh, kingdoms of Ivory and the Swar and the Dark Kingdom of Jade. Uh, things that I, again, had not seen elsewhere. And uh, it gave some real interesting little bits as to how the other kingdoms in the, uh, the, the Shadowlands operate and who well, not lives, but who lives there, what they do. And since, as Mike mentioned, this is toward the end of the game line, uh, those tidbits never really were developed anywhere else. But, uh, hey, if you uh, if you are a Wraith player and you want to uh, read up on the rest of the Wraithly world, this is a, a, a decent section. I guess it's an important section because, of course, we think of World War One as obviously as a... You know, primarily a European conflict, but, you know, you had essentially, you know, the UK, the, the British Empire was at its, well, this was the, the start of the end of it. So many of the people fighting were not just white British people. They were pulled in from every part of the world. And so not only are the ranks of, of the dead swelled you know just within the kingdom of iron i'm sure these people who you know the unfortunate soldiers who died on the front lines far from home um returned to an underworld you know returned to the underworld which is that which it relates to the their homelands and their culture and would swell the ranks of the undead there so that must lead to uh, quite the um you know the the for each of those underworlds with their own military uh, legions, um, that because all those groups are swelling, that's that's obviously going to cause tensions in the underworld. Absolutely, and one of the uh, one of the campaign chronicle ideas that it gives is uh, you were stationed in Africa and uh, you did not survive the war, and now you are stuck in somebody else's afterlife oh, and need to walk home to yours through the fourth great maelstrom and hey when you arrive in uh the necropolis that is in paris it's also a super horrible place yeah yeah wow 
Yeah, it's a dark game, you guys. <laughs> uh, uh, and chapter six, uh, which in my opinion is the meat and potatoes of the book, where the book really does shine, gives dozens of, of chronicle ideas uh, for your camp for your chronicle uh, from the the standard Wraithly, Hey, let's all look after one another's fetters over in the Skinlands and make sure that uh, Ma doesn't lose the farm and, you know, my, my dad's pocket watch makes it to my son and things like that to um, the more periodic specific, uh, hey, you died in that over in Africa and uh, now you're in the wrong, you're, you're in the wrong afterlife. Good luck getting back. Uh, there, there's a whole section on uh, the Charon Chronicles, which... Sounds like it would have been a, a really interesting uh, chronicle book had it ever been published. Um, and it basically amounts to um, how the emperor of uh, the dead likes to fuck with your PCs. Uh, because, like I said, like it says in the book, you know, he's still around. He hasn't completely disappeared or fallen to oblivion or whatever you think happened in the current Wraith timeline. Uh, so he's still out there, you know, as one of the oldest and most powerful dead. He's still out there walking uh, the, the deadlands from place to place, uh, meeting wraiths, talking to others, seeing how it's going, <laughs> um, fixing your, your broken shadows, things like that. Um, maybe considering taking back his throne. Maybe, maybe considering going into oblivion. And hey, maybe... Maybe your PCs can uh, sway in one way or the other, but uh, yeah, it's a, it would have been an interesting chronicle. Yeah, Wraith never got any like epic chronicle or anything like that. There was just you know a couple ideas, Midnight Express, a few other uh, small stories, and that like, that sort of thing. So it might have been got interesting. Love After Death, which, as you'll recall, we reviewed here on Darker Days Radio, and yeah, and uh, yeah, there was one good story in there. There was, in fact, one decent story. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to chapter seven, the the final act, full chapter of the book, uh, which has, I mean, I get why they put it here. They, they got to they gotta put it somewhere. Um, it, it's uh, information on enemies that your, your characters might uh, interact with, uh, various hunter organizations, uh, the forces of oblivion themselves, you know, who live in the heart of the the tempest. Uh, uh, Clan Giovanni is written up here. It's it's a nice chapter to have, but I really don't think that it uh, is in line with the tone of the rest of the book, which is a uh, uh, ghost on ghost violence and dealing with the aftermath of war. I don't think that I that if I were, were to run a uh, Wraith, uh, the Great War Chronicle, I would include any outside uh, antagonists. But that's just me. They're there if you want to to know what uh, Clan John was doing in the uh, 1900s. That's a good point. And uh, like every. Uh, World of Darkness core book. It ends with an appendix of people, places, and things. There are a good 30 necropoli here. Everything from Chicago to Constantinople. How the wraiths are handling 
huddled up in uh, far too many, a number in far too small a space in all instances, uh, trying to avoid the maelstrom that is raging outside their walls. Um, it also covers uh, the battlefields that are still just scarring the countryside, filled with angst and despair. Uh, and of course, there are some neat things you can have in the appendix. The aforementioned uh, relic tanks, along with ships, like sailing ships, uh, airplanes, and hey, even a Zeppelin. This book, right, with a lot of what you said, is there's so much to do because also, because you've got the swell of these ranks, it also has, um, I think there's quite an opportunity for a bit of a genre mashup because the the ranks of the dead of these you know, legions, especially the legions of the dead from war, you've also will come into contact. It gives you a chance for wraiths maybe of, from various wars before then uh, interacting and and uh, learning about how the world has changed or or maybe how um, their fetters in the real world in the in the mortal world have been are in danger uh, or, or have been destroyed due to this world war. So, you know, some, I know, someone that took part in the Battle of Waterloo, you know, couldn't have even thought of the fact that um, what they thought was a, a fetter that was safe in Paris was under threat because of this, this monumental level of, like, you know, uh, you know, mortar shelling and, and so forth. There's so much... Uh, opportunity there to look at just genre mashup as well not only that but uh the fourth great maelstrom itself it will screw with your fetters mm. so let's say that uh you're a soldier from chicago and you died on i don't know in the battle of the Somme. uh your fetter might be your wife who is uh, at home grieving your loss. But if you are in the Shadowlands and you cannot uh, get back across the sea to Chicago where your wife is waiting for you because of the maelstrom that would sink any ship that tried to, to make that passage, you might... You, you have ties only to what is near you to know what was near you when you died so those are probably going to be lesser than you know your true love who waits back for who waits back home for you you know it might be this stretch of trench that you defended for 139 of those 140 days and once that last fetter falls you're lost Mm -hmm. even though you have things that you could have been continuing to exist for you can't you, you do not have a spiritual connection to them because it has been severed or because it has been interfered with by the storm yeah. it's yeah it's it's worse than you thought it could be <laughs> which seems to be the theme of this game the other great thing about this book when you go through it is you know i think 
there is a lot here because it deals with the you know you're playing wraiths that are dealing with the aftermath of, of world war one and and you know battles that were some of the you know had some of the greatest loss of life ever um you know but also i think how else could you use this book you know it is truly depressing and also does a fantastic job of covering um the 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 war and gives you interesting locations uh in the shadowlands um but also i think you know there's a lot to explore with this um from a mortal aspect within the world of darkness because i know we're getting a ghost hunters book for um for for uh, 20th anniversary aren't we for for um to fit in with wraith 20 is that correct i think we're getting a ghost hunters book i think it's just a generic world of darkness book but yeah it should be for for the 20th anniversary system yeah so it's still a classic system you you know, you could play quite happily i think that again dealing with um the kind of spiritualism that would reemerge because obviously that was a very victorian thing but how that spiritualism and and dealing with the dead um manifests after world war one uh and then likewise you could look at this setting this book which is a wonderful uh book to have in your armory for um for geist you know sin eaters in paris after the war is over there's a lot of restless dead to deal with and again some of the ideas of these necropoli would make great domains uh in the lower depths to um to explore like 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 i said at the top it is a dark it is a depressing book but there are there 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 are gems in this book truly truly um inspiring isn't the right word (laughs) but there there are some uh some fantastic uh bits of uh, information and and role-playing opportunity in this book and if you haven't read it and if you are uh, a Wraith player or someone who's interested in Wraith, I strongly recommend it. But, uh, you know, don't nice. don't read it at night if you're sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Understood. Great. Yeah. All right. Great review, Che really, uh, Thank you for, for going through all of that. And uh, I think, you know, we're running a little late here, but uh, let's uh, go on and just do the secret frequency real quick, and then we'll finish up the show. The Knights Templar Cartel is, or was, a powerful criminal syndicate in the Michoacan state of Mexico, dealing in the trafficking of drugs, guns, and people. Despite suffering setbacks in recent years with a territory war with the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, arrests and seizures by the Mexican government, and the assassination of their leader, rumors are flying that the Knights Templar have been rebranded. Their rebirth is not just as a new drug family, they are proselytizing themselves as a Christian drug cult. Drug dealers and hitmen in Mexico have long co-opted Christianity to justify their heinous acts, claiming kinship with the patron saints and folk heroes. Famously, the Familia Michoacana cartel, the predecessor to the Knights Templar, left five heads on a club dance floor stating that the killings were divine justice. 
the Knights Templar have taken a more dramatic turn, creating a cult where Mexican youth can find stability in their lives as evangelical insurgents. New members are indoctrinated to see their new life as a spiritual battlefield, manifesting in warfare with the government and rival gangs. Their acts of violence are, to them, spiritually justified. Meanwhile, their overlords just keep collecting the drug money. Actual details of the Knights Templar narco cult are sparse. It might not even exist anymore, but it is apparent that the cartel used imagery, particularly the crucifix, as a way of binding together initiates with a sense of equality. This communitas uh, carried over into robed rituals, where the lowest and highest members of the cults dressed in the same manner. The young men were made to think that they were warriors of God, and the war they waged was for the kingdom in heaven. So, yeah, in the world of darkness, you could definitely uh, get some ideas from this really dark, horrific aspect of, uh, of human society and human culture. In, in Demon of the Fallen and Mummy the Curse, you know, cults are used extensively. They're a huge portion of the setting and the game system itself. Uh, Demon focuses on cults for worship, uh, which plays into the narco cult very well. Uh, the Elohim could be worshipped as an idol or conduit to the god, to, or whatever god. More intriguingly for the World of Darkness, uh, perhaps the demons narco cult cartel would actually avoid killing because conversion of their rivals uh, would net the demon more faith and could also be seen as a more peaceful alternative, which would slowly bring entire communities under the uh, control of the cartel and into worship of the narco cult itself. Mummy cults behave differently. Um, they're a, a, ma they're a means of aid and power uh, to help retain the mummy's memories um, and also to carry out acts and support. So psychedelic drugs have long been seen as a spiritual crutch amongst uh, Latin American cultures. Perhaps the uh, mummy's cult would make extensive use of ayahuasca tea from the Amazon basin to tap into past memories. So I don't know, what do you guys think? Do you have any ideas for uh, how narco cults drug cartels could be used in your World of Darkness game? Oh, absolutely. Um, there was a Vampire the Masquerade source book whose name escapes me right now that dealt with uh, religion and cults. And this being... State of Grace. There you go. Uh, this yeah. being a, uh, a... This in particular being a Mexican phenomenon. Uh, Mexico, of course, being... Uh, taken over ages ago by the Sabbat, who also have very strong uh, Catholic imagery. I mean, it's it's an obvious connection, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you could also work this in uh, perhaps it is a militant arm of the Lancet Sanctum in Mexico for Requiem. Uh, or, or you know, whichever version of the creed of the Lancet Sanctum manifest there. Uh, I was also thinking that you could look at this, because is there some, Mike, is there something linked with between this cult and the idea of uh, Santa Myrta, the, um, the, the saint of death? Yeah, a little bit. Nothing, nothing direct, but uh, you can definitely work in that sort of a, um, I don't know, ne necrotic aspect to it, yeah. um, that, that death aspect. Uh, Specifically, they aren't supposed to be a death cult. They're uh, 
Uh, although, obviously, killing in this sort of a uh, fanatical, zealous manner is definitely part of it. Um, it doesn't seem to be something they worship. However, if you were to have like a mummy cult or something like that, having the death cult aspect would uh, play in extremely well uh, to that whole idea. I think it, it, again, it could just be they could be easily a front that's uh, manipulated by um, as part of a uh, a crew in um, in Geist. Uh, that's an easy angle to go down. Uh, in Mage, the Ascension, how possibly the Euthanatos work into this uh, with with their local um, form. I say the Euthanatos is the death element, but then you've also got the Cult of Ecstasy. So no, really? I, I was going straight for the Celestial Chorus because of yeah, the well, as well, yeah. Mm. Um, who else is that? What other things could we work in with? I don't really see anything that works well with Promethean. Uh, Mage the Ascension, uh, Mage the Awakening, I think, uh, again, is quite easy possibly to go down the route of a mystery cult, so this could easily act as a, a uh, front um, uh, within the um, archive, I think, group now. Guardians of the Veil. Um, I don't know what the ideas are there. I mean, definitely in Werewolf, there's uh, there's some ideas to be had uh, about drug cults and that sort of thing. You know, especially if you consider more like performance-enhancing drugs and what werewolves might do to try to just find that edge in the apocalypse. Um, and they could build up an entire cult around them uh, based on this this exploration of different things. Um, and another thing to consider is, you know, werewolves have this whole hypermetabolism, and how is that affected uh, by drugs and other things entering their body? Um, I don't know. It's, well, uh, it's just another thing you could explore. Canonically, they're not, because they heal from whatever that would do to them super fast. But then they also have, you know, werewolves who brew and drink beer, which yeah. is a, a kind of poison. So it's, it's always been... Yeah. Kind of sort of. It's inconsistent. The best inconsistent. World to have. I mean, wasn't there a recent book that tried to say that vaccines were from the worm and they were yeah. bad for werewolves? Uh, I don't think I read that book. Uh, yeah, don't don't read it. Um, <laughs> you could go the Pentex angle with this cult, so they are a front for a distribution of a uh, powerful psychonarcotic and maybe the distribution of this drug is causing the emergence of uh, femori or weird mutants um, within Mexico. That's a possible idea. You know, actually that would just remind me, there was a um, story in the Wraith, or no, the Orpheus uh, like short story novella anthology and it talked about the pigment drug, the uh, kind of designer drug being uh, given out in Mexico City. So I wonder if you could take that further and uh, have this, this cult based around that sort of psychedelic drug, or what people think is a psychedelic drug, but really it is a way for them to access and see the Shadowlands and be able to partially interact with it. Uh, that could be a really powerful tool, especially in a situation where there's been a lot of tragedy 
uh, such as after a war. Um, the cult may well be actually um, uh, well versed in uh, in dealing with vampires, um, maybe, given that they may have strong faith because they see it as uh, a holy war against the undead, whether it's in Vampire the Masquerade or Requiem and taking some ideas from various bits of media like the Blade TV series and also from like Moonlight. I think also there's some ideas that may well be in, in V5. Oh, with Thin Bloods. Oh, wow. Actually, this works really well with Thin Bloods um, because this could all be uh, to do with... Um, this is all just actually front for a group of Thin Bloods who are experimenting with Thin Blood alchemy and they're creating narcotics also. Uh, from uh, the ashes of vampires that they have destroyed. I like it. Yeah, that's really good. Really strong. Cool. Um, so I think that's pretty much it for uh, this secret frequency in this episode. So yeah, kind of closing things out. Of course, Dark Days Radio has a lot of great social media presence. We are on Facebook with a lot of great postings and all that. We are on Twitter um, We're on. with a lot of great interaction, talking to people. Yeah. We're on Instagram. We're on Oh, Instagram, that's right, yep. Very active. Uh, we are. We have a Discord where we... That's right. About Babylon 5. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to put a link to the uh, Discord invite in the show notes. Definitely please join us. Uh, a couple of people already have. We had some really cool discussions uh, about a lot of topics. Even even Beast the Primordial had a uh, really, really intense discussion about a week ago, uh, which was cool. So uh, definitely, definitely join us there and uh really want to grow that community because it's going to be unfortunately replacing our google plus since that's uh going away um also, and then finally okay, well, finally what's your final well i was i was introducing you oh, yeah. uh chris as the uh the twitch personality of the show oh, well, well yeah okay yeah we've got twitch so we have got twitch that um syndicates some of the vampire fifth edition twitch stuff going on but i will be doing more stuff uh now that i've moved i've got good internet so i can um I'll do some painting or something because I've got a box game to pick up tomorrow. Speed Freaks. Uh, so so I'll mostly be painting some Hawk vehicles. So I'll see if I can get everything uh, set up. So um, I'll be doing some live streaming of painting some Orcs. Also, finally as well, um, <laughs> uh, we will be, hopefully, I will be at Dragon Meat. It's the day after I get back from Boston. So... I'm mostly going to be fucked out of my brains on that one um, with uh, jet lag. But the point is, uh, Dragon Meat is in London, uh, and uh, that is December 1st. Uh, so we are teaming up with a number of podcasts to form the Podcast Zone, so hashtag Podcast Zone. So we're supporting each other to represent podcasts at this roleplay event that is... Um, run by Modifius, and there will be various companies there. So it's kind of like a, a smaller roleplay-focused event, gaming event, compared to, say, UK Games Expo or Essen. Uh, we will be there, I will be there, hopefully, along with other people from podcasts, such as the following. Formal Gamer, Rusty Quill, The Good Friends of Jackson uh, Elias, Sword Coast Soundscapes, The Releasters uh, release days uh, podcast. Oh, oh, tell me if I got that wrong. Uh, the Coriolis Effect, the Penance RPG podcast, Green Stuff Games, Pretending with Dice, and D20 Futures Show. Um, 
I haven't really listened to any of those. I should really do so. Um, you should definitely listen to um, uh, the the Magnus Archives from uh, 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 Rusty Quill. Okay, right. Absolutely should. So yeah, we'll have a little area where we can, you know, you can say hi. I will be there, bleary eyed, um, so you can talk shit to me, tell me that Dark Days Radio sucks because we dislike Beast yeah. <laughs> or we dislike some other game or we said some other bullshit or you or you really like it and you want us to run some more demos. Um, you know, stuff like that or you know, you get the idea. Um, yeah, so that's what else is going on. Uh, so that's, that's December 1st. So hopefully we'll do a podcast before then because as I said, I will be at Boston, in Boston for a week uh, for work. So I think, Mike, does that mean we're doing a live show? I say live show, but face-to-face. Yeah, we will record an episode in the same room. Oh, right. Uh, we'll yeah, try... it should be good. I think we should do it because we'll have Sam with us as well because she's coming over with me. So um, so Sam, who obviously, when we do um, uh, Network Zero, uh, she is often there talking about films and horror and stuff like that. So I think we should just do replicate the classic uh, Dragon Meat uh, podcast last year of sat in a cafe or bar with the 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 the, the lovely ambience it gives such a show <laughs> we could use that or we could use my professional podcasting equipment with like a mixer mm, and microphones an and all that uh, well. we'll, we'll figure it out nice all right well i think that's it for the episode uh chris chig thank you so much for uh coming on the show as usual and uh you know to all the listeners out there good night This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. <laughs>